This is a work of revelation. It's there in verse 23. See, all of that condemnation is undergirding something else that God wants to make known. What is it? It's the riches of his glory in his work molding the vessels of mercy. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, good morning. Have you ever allowed a question that you have about God or about the Bible to cause you to push away from the table a little bit and kind of say, hold on, hold on, wait a sec, time out. Uh, I kind of want to address you today, if that's you, where you kind of have looked at the word or you looked at an attribute of God and you've kind of for a minute had maybe a crisis of faith where you, you actually, instead of just pushing away from the table, you actually look under the table and say, wait a minute. Is this what we believe? Is this true? And if we're honest, we, we've all sort of been there at one point or another. Wrestling through questions is fine and good if we answer those questions with the truth of God's word, not with cynical skepticism. You see, guys, today there is rising within Christianity a problem called deconstruction. A deconstruction is the notion that you find spiritual truth not by doing what Jude said. Jude said that we should be built up in our most holy faith. Uh, In his little punchy epistle in verse 20, he tells us that we're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. See, deconstruction is the opposite. Deconstruction says, no, tear down the building blocks of your faith one by one, one doctrine at a time. And some would argue it's merit. They would say deconstruction's good. And here's their argument. Their argument is, well, you, you take an idea or a practice or a tradition or a belief or a system and you break it down into smaller components in order to examine their foundation or their truthfulness or their usefulness or their impact, the impact that those have on the whole system of belief. However, what ends up happening, the end result when you deconstruct your faith is that you reconstruct something that looks absolutely nothing like biblical Christianity. What's sad is it does not increase confidence in your faith. It actually increases doubt, despair, and skepticism. And usually you reject the faith. Deconstruction is not something that is maybe uh, a minor threat. This is a huge part of uh, the modern evangelical church today. There's a lot, including uh, John Williamson, Michael and Lisa Gunger. Maybe you've heard of the Gunger's music. Uh, Joshua Harris, who's, who's been a prolific writer and pastor, as well as Audrey Assad and Marty Sampson of Hillsong. That's just half a dozen, but this is almost uh, a, an honor now. It's considered an honor to come out of the church closet to announce, hey, guess what? I've deconstructed my faith. I no longer believe in the faith that I once espoused. Maybe you know someone that has deconstructed their faith. They've said, you know, I've really examined like the historical Jesus. And so I've decided after much study in my position, and I've done some Google searches because now I'm an expert. uh, And so I've decided that Jesus is no longer who the Bible declares him to be. 
You see, both deconstructionists and what's called the progressive church, okay, today pick apart historic Christianity only to, again, reconstruct a faith that is no longer recognizable as the Christian faith of the Bible. And the biggest issue with deconstruction and the, the progressive church is that they challenge the nature and character of God. In, in other words, uh, they do not fully understand what um, theologians call this is the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God does not mean that God is simple. Uh, it just means that what God has, God is. And, and every area that people question their faith or deconstruct can be answered by how the Bible reveals the triune creator God who's holy, self-existent, transcendent, just, merciful, loving, and sovereign. Now, if we as the creation seek to deconstruct the simplicity of God down into bite-sized parts that we examine, that we judge, what happens is that we now have a domesticated deity that we have begun to fashion into our own image rather than being formed into his image. So when we take God and we fashion him into our image, by definition, that's idolatry. See, what we have to do is at the same time rightly understand who God is and how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And because of that, we will rightly know who we are. We are made in his image. It's not the other way around. He's the creator. We're the creature. And we look at him as the source centerpiece and the most important in all of existence. It's not us. You know, they found this out with uh, with Copernicus, right? That we are not the center of our own universe. <laughs> they found that out a long time ago. And Paul, in the text before us in Romans chapter 9, answers a handful of questions that many skeptics throughout the centuries, and maybe you even in your family, have wrestled through. Uh, the problem is the skeptics have allowed their skepticism and their questions to drive a wedge into their faith. And we must not do that. So questions like, we'll put them on the screen, is God unjust? How can hell be fair if God is sovereign? If election is true, wait, then isn't God cruel and uncaring? Even as we've opened Romans chapter 8 and started to digest some of these biblical concepts, I've had some of you come to me and, and ask even that third question. Well, well if election is true, then, then God must not be caring. Um, and so do you see what's happening in these questions? The character of God is being questioned by the finite sinful creature, <laughs> something's amiss. And thankfully, I'm so grateful that Paul doesn't avoid these questions. We're not in any way saying, oh, don't, don't ask difficult questions. Uh, but Paul addresses them directly in the text that we're gonna be studying together today. And Paul actually has a question of his own for the detractor. And his question is our sermon title this morning, who are you, O oh man? And just in case you're a woman, who are you, O woman? Who are you, O human, O creature? Now, normally we break the, the text down in an outline form. Today, we're going to do it a little bit different, and we're just going to make three big points. So if you're taking note, we're going to uh, look at the text through the lens of three points. Number one, we're going to look at God being just in his mercy. God is just in his mercy, and we'll look at the first three verses. Notice Paul's question in verse 14. You've been used to hearing this throughout our study of Romans. He says, what shall we say then? What is our response? What is our response to the fact, if you were here last week, if you weren't, you missed it, that Esau was hated by God and the nation of Edom was rejected by God and Jacob and the people of Israel were loved by God. 
What's our response to that? What's our response to God's purpose of election not being based in human works, but on him who calls? What's our response? Well, some may erroneously respond, that's a lack of justice. God is unjust. God himself, his nature is unjust. Well, Paul emphatically declares, if that's your response, he says, basically in the Greek, God forbid. He says, by no means, God forbid. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God's freedom to choose one and reject another, irregardless of their works, is not a doctrine inconsistent with his justice. But listen, neither is God capricious as if it were duck, duck, damnation. I like what McDonald says in the Believer's Bible Commentary. He helps put God's justice in light of hell into perspective. He says, The whole human race was doomed to destruction by its own sin and not by arbitrary decree of God. If God allowed everyone to go to hell and he could justly have done that, people would be getting exactly what they deserve. He goes on to say, the question is, does the sovereign Lord have a right to stoop down and select a handful of otherwise doomed people to be a bride for his son? And the answer, of course, is that he does. If people are lost, it's because of their own sin and rebellion. If people are saved, it is because of the sovereign electing grace of God. So if we want to think about God's justice, Paul says here, let's be reminded of God's mercies. And quoting Exodus 33, he, he presents the first of two examples of the justice of God in either his mercy or his hardening. Notice verse 15. For he says to Moses, quoting Exodus 33:19, if you're taking note, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is in Exodus when, remember, God had asked, or Moses had asked God, show me your glory. And remember, God had passed by Moses. Do you guys remember that? And he declared his name and he covered Moses with his hand so he could not see God's face, but only his glory passing by. You guys remember that. But right before that, what happened right before that was there was a series of critical events. You see, first God had gone, or Moses had gone up to receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And the people of Israel growing restless, waiting for Moses to come down. Uh, they began to get restless, and they said, he's not coming back, and, and they turned to Aaron, and then they're like, hey, let's, let's go ahead and craft this golden calf. Uh, and they all began to worship it. Of course, Aaron, when Moses comes down, he's like, I don't know what happened. I just threw the gold in the fire, and just this, this calf came out. I mean, it's perfectly polished and shaped, but who knew? Uh, and so Moses comes down, remember, he sees the blatant idolatry, being committed by God's covenantal people, and he destroys the idol, deals with the leaders, and then makes atonement for the people. And we looked at this last week. He actually said to God in, in, in a prayer of intercession, hey, blot my name out if the people of Israel can't be forgiven. And God says, no, the person who sins will die. And after all of this, Moses says, okay, show me your glory, God. Reveal it to me. And God says, okay, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And that's the moment when God declares, as he's passing by, he's like, hey, let me show you my glory. And he says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy. I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. Stephen Cole says it this way. Um, to paraphrase, God is telling Moses, this is the essence of who I am, my name. Your name is, in, in Scripture, who you are. And so God says, uh, 
My glory is displayed by my freedom to show mercy and compassion to whomever I wish. I'm not obligated to show mercy to any. Why? Because all have sinned and justly deserve my judgment. But I am free to show my glory both by giving mercy to some and by withholding it from others. That is who I am. And so we need to distinguish for a minute between God's right to be merciful and someone who thinks, I deserve mercy. So let's make sure we define terms for a minute, okay? If you're taking note on the screen, the mercy of God is not something anyone deserves. By definition, justice is getting what we deserve. By the way, that's also how you define grace. Uh, uh, oh, no, we'll get to grace. Um, justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So you deserve judgment. You deserve God's justice. If you receive his mercy, you don't get what you deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that's what I was going to say at that point. Grace is kind of the same as injustice. You get what you don't deserve. That's what injustice is. It's getting something you don't actually deserve. What we deserve this morning is justice. So when you and I receive mercy, it means, wait, I didn't receive the fullness of judgment that I deserved. So do you, do you see how silly it is, how, how much it's folly to demand mercy, to sit back as the creature and expect mercy as a deserved right? God doesn't owe anyone mercy, but he's free to give it to whomever he wills. So think about it this way. A just judge at the same time can uphold the law as well as extend mercy to the condemned criminal. Or to put it even more powerfully, if DeSantis found out there's 10 inmates on death row, as an act of mercy, he pardons seven of the 10. Is that unfair to the remaining three? It's not, it's not unfair at all. It's within his right to uphold justice and at the same time to extend mercy. So we call it grace when we get something we don't deserve. God's mercies are not deserved by anyone. His judgment is, and he's absolutely just in his mercy. And the fact that we question his character and his mercy, it really reveals where our heart's at. Jesus in Matthew 20 actually illustrates this idea of deserved or undeserved mercy and grace in a parable. This is the parable of the landowner and vineyard. So I want you guys to look this up later, Matthew 20. The idea is that the landowner goes to the marketplace and he wants to find some workers to work in his vineyard. So he goes early in the morning and he hires some to work the entire day. And they agree on a paycheck. Here's your pay, it's a denarius. A denarius is essentially, uh, in case you didn't know, it's about how much you would be paid to go to like a, a day labor employment office where you're like, I'm just gonna work today and get paid today. It's about that much, actually. Even in today's money, a denarius is about anywhere from $50 to $100. So in Jesus' parable, the landowner, landowner goes back to the marketplace around mid-morning, and he hires some more workers. And then he goes around mid-afternoon to hire some more. Uh, and then about an hour before calling it a day, in Jesus' parable, the landowner finds some guys just kind of standing around. And he says, hey, I'd like to hire you. And so when the evening comes, an hour later... They all line up according to who showed up the soonest to receive their pay. So the guys who were there just an hour, they lined up first, then the late day guys, then the morning guys, then the early morning guys at the very back of the pack who had been working since sunrise. But as they receive their pay, the early birds get kind of frustrated because they go, wait a minute, you paid the guys who worked an hour the same pay that we received. And we've been here all day. 
and they grumble that this is unfair. But in the parable, Jesus, his master of the house, says this. He asks this question. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You see, the landowner would have been unfair if he didn't pay the first group what he had already agreed to, what they deserved. Uh, they signed on to uh, work, and they all agreed, I want to work for you, and a denarius, okay, I'll work for a denarius, and that's what they were paid. But see, the landowner also decided to give the last hour workers a denarius, and that was just simply a generous act of grace, right? So we have to be careful. The landowner was neither unjust nor was his mercy unfair. It means some got what they deserved and others were given something above and beyond that they didn't deserve. So if we look back at the verses right before this in Romans 9, which we studied last week, we remember as sinners, both Jacob and Esau deserved God's wrath. They both did. And Esau did receive the wrath, but Jacob received the mercy. And as we said last week, it doesn't surprise me that God hated Esau. It surprises me that God loved Jacob. Now, notice what it depends on. What does this all depend on in verse 16? Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. Notice what Paul's saying. Both intention and effort are meaningless if we're speaking about them from a human origin. Our salvation doesn't depend on these things. It depends on the merciful, sovereign God. Now, notice here the word exertion here. Literally in the Greek, that's running. So like running a foot race with a strenuous effort. I'm going to run my way to God's grace, to God's mercy. Now, I think we could just as soon insert these ideas into verse 16. We could say it this way. So then it depends not on human emotion or religious fervency. doesn't matter how high your hands got raised in worship this morning. That's not what it depends on. It depends not on spirituality, charisma, or giftedness. You could be the most gifted ever. That's not what your salvation depends on. It depends not on who your parents are or if you were baptized or confirmed as a child. It depends not on how much you've cleaned up your act or what addictions you may have overcome. See, human will or exertion is not what our salvation depends on. We learn from this verse, it all rests on God, and God has mercy on whomever he wills. Church, that's glorious good news. Because as we line up next to one another and we start racing, we realize it's not to the swift and the strong. It's not the person who can run the fastest. Oh, they get to be saved. Horatius Bonar in 1864 wrote these words. He said, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. How encouraging is that? Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Don't be mistaken as you look at these truths. God is not unjust. No one deserves to be saved or to receive mercy. And to suggest that God is unjust, according to John Calvin, is madness. Listen to what he says. He says, monstrous surely is the madness of the human mind that it is more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness than to blame itself for blindness. Uh, blindness. Since, and yet that's what we see people doing. See, listen, God is at the same time knowable and yet he's incomprehensible. 
Uh, we know from Isaiah 55, 9, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so when we can't comprehend the nature or character of God, we have to be careful to not be quick to charge him with unrighteousness and put ourselves in the place of the judge rather than the judged. And we see the world doing this, right? You, you see uh, people like the atheist Richard Dawkins. By the way, I've never quoted him in any sermon uh, ever, but, but Richard Dawkins accused Yahweh of these things. He says, Yahweh is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, uh, uh, pestilential, megalomian, uh, megalomaniacal, if I can get through these, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, to which I reply, humbug. <laughs> See, what he's done is he's reduced God from creator to creature, and he's shaped him into the image of man. So when I look at the ways of God, I look at it from a man-centered perspective. That's the same thing that the Greco-Romans did with their gods and demigods. We can't put God on our level and then begin to make judgment calls against him. You see, Yahweh is the source of all life, goodness, love, and meaning. And to put him on trial is to reveal our own character. So listen, God is not unjust in showing mercy to condemned creatures. On the contrary, his justice is upheld, but his mercies are glorious. So let's look at our second point, that God is, number two, free in his purposes. Verses 17 and 18, God is free in his purposes. You see, Paul goes on to present a second scriptural example of God at work, but it's an example that comes much earlier in our Bibles than Mount Sinai. He speaks about Egypt and Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. We read it earlier. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, to understand this, we need to turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter five. So hold your place and turn with me to Exodus chapter five. Uh, that is the second book in our Bibles, so it should not be too difficult to locate. While you're turning there, uh, in context, God has sent Moses to Pharaoh to present himself before the ruler of Egypt and, and say, let my people go. The Israelites were in bondage as Egyptian slaves, and God had revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness as I am. And he was calling Moses to deliver the nation from the Egyptians. So Exodus chapter 5 records what this first encounter looked like. Exodus 5, 2 Notice with me, this is what Pharaoh says, verse 2 of chapter 5. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Does anyone see the glaring problem here? The problem is Pharaoh doesn't know who Yahweh is. So Pharaoh compounds the work for the Israelite slaves, and they grumble to Moses and Moses prays, and God confirms, no, I will indeed deliver you to the promised land. But in that promise, God also says, I'm, uh, he explains, I'm also going to be hardening Pharaoh's heart through some great acts of judgment, but it's all for an express purpose. Okay, let's turn our Bibles one page to the right, Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, note here. God is speaking to his people. 
Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Note this part right here. You shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You see what God seems to be concerned about here? He says, I want you to know that I am Yahweh. Well, notice what else he's concerned about. Exodus 7, turn the page again. Exodus 7, 5. Here's what he says. The Egyptians shall know, here it is, that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I've always wondered this ever since I've learned this in Sunday school as a kid because you learn all about the narratives in Sunday school, right? And I've always wondered, why didn't Pharaoh just let the people go on day one? If God's sovereign, why didn't he just say, like, turn the heart of Pharaoh to just let the people go? And then just wipe out the Egyptians day one. Just plunder them. The Israelites can leave, can leave and head over to the promised land in a week. Why didn't that happen? Why didn't it happen when Moses first showed up? Because God wanted both Israel and Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the world to know who he is. So after this, we have water turned into wine. We have, remember, frogs in the pantry, frogs in the sock drawer. We, we have gnats and flies swarming everywhere. And you guys thought love bugs were bad. There, there's gnats and flies everywhere. And then it begins to get more personal. The Egyptian livestock all die, even as they observe the Israelite livestock is remaining. And then the people begin to suffer from skin boils and sores on their bodies. So at this point, we need to turn two more chapters to Exodus 9. Notice what happens in verse 15. God says, Exodus 9, 15, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He's speaking to Pharaoh. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You see, listen, church, God was not lacking muscle in his judgment against Pharaoh or Egypt. If anything, he seemed to be lacking urgency. But see, we know in God's judgment, he has his hand on the clock and he has a purpose behind any judgment. He has a purpose in, in Egypt behind the plagues. Uh, and so why does he take his time? He certainly possesses the power to immediately, completely, and sufficiently judge. But see, God is patient with Pharaoh. Why? To display his glory. So don't miss this. Don't miss this. God's intention with hardening Pharaoh's heart was to reveal his power, to reveal his name to the ends of the earth. He could have just wiped Egypt out and moved Israel on, but the point was to uh, allow his name to be known, for his glory to be displayed. And this happened. This was certainly the case because uh, a, a generation later, the prostitute named Rahab, who lived in Jericho, she said this in Joshua 2.10. Notice on the screen. She says, We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, uh, before you when you came out of Egypt. She had heard of the name of Yahweh in Israel. And later in Joshua 9.9, we read this, that they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of Yahweh, your God. For we've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. You see, the people from hundreds of miles away, living in and around Canaan, had heard of the name of Yahweh and they had heard of all that he did in Egypt. 
Why did God raise up Pharaoh, a vessel of wrath? Why? To display and demonstrate his purposes in the world. And God has a right to do that, doesn't he? He has a right to do whatever he desires to do. Notice Paul's summary back in Romans chapter 9. Turn back with me. Look at Paul's summary of these truths in verse 18. He says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, if you've read Exodus, something's jumped out at you. You said, wait a minute, hold on, asterisk. Pharaoh also hardened his heart, right? So good job. The Exodus account does reveal that Pharaoh has had hardened his heart six times, at least, leading up to uh, Exodus 9, when God speaks to him. And then he did it again after the seventh plague. And I believe at a certain point, like Romans 1 and 2 describe, Pharaoh had rejected God's revelation of himself through creation and more specifically through these miracles of judgment. So God simply turned him over to a debased mind. Pharaoh had hardened his heart over and over and over. And when we read God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God was simply giving to him what he thought he wanted. You and I, at the pinnacle of our rebellion, we cry out, my will be done. And eventually God says, so be it. In fact, Paul Washer says it this way. He says, God's love is of such a character that he's even able to love, to show love, and to demonstrate love toward the objects of his wrath. And this is a powerful picture. He says, it is though with one hand God is holding back his justice against the world, and with another hand he's pleading for men to come, but one day both hands will be dropped. You see, don't for a minute buy into the idea that Pharaoh was some sort of pawn or a puppet. No, he did exactly what he willed to do. And God may have hardened Pharaoh's heart in chapter 9, verse 12, but Pharaoh continues to harden his own heart in 934. And so this clearly isn't permanent. God's will is at work even as man's perceived will appears to work against God. God reveals to Moses, I will have mercy and compassion on whomever I will. And that demonstrates his, the justice of his mercy. Well, God also reveals to Pharaoh, I can harden whomever I will. And that demonstrates the freedom of God in his willful purposes. So these truths of giving mercy on one side, hardening on the other, listen, church, that doesn't make God a monster. That makes him merciful and mighty. And that's Paul's point. One person said, God's sovereignty in rejection and man's responsibility for that rejection are to be maintained as two complementary truths, truths that must not be used to detract from one another. We said it last week. Spurgeon said, I don't try to reconcile friends. These things go together. In fact, Spurgeon said, if there's one doctrine in the world which reveals the enmity of the human heart more than another, it's the doctrine of God's sovereignty. They do not love God except they can make him a little God. They cannot bear for him to be supreme. They would gladly take his will away from him and set up their own will as the first cause. Wow. See, God doesn't answer to us, nor does he owe us an explanation. This is in some ways a mystery that we aren't encouraged to solve. God is free in his purposes, and he doesn't have to answer to any creatures who don't fully understand his ways. In fact, Paul rebukes the one who's trying to call God to answer him with a question of his own. Paul uh, asks a question of his own, but first we have verse 19. Uh, with an argument Paul is anticipating. Look at verse 19. He says, You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? 
for who can resist his will? So look at our third point here. Our third point is that number three, God is sovereign in his wrath and in his mercy, verses 19 through 23. So stay with me. The detractor in verse 19 is asking, hey, if this is God's will, then how can he blame me? How can he blame us? If no one can resist God's will, then how can we be complicit or how can we be guilty? So you might put it this way. Is God just creating a puppet out of wood and then he makes the puppet disobey him and then he smashes the puppet on the ground and gets mad at him? Right? Some people would ask that. This sounds a bit extreme. Why would God do that? Well, Paul has a question back to the detractors. Verse 20. His question is, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Notice he doesn't try to answer the objection. He just says, this is inappropriate. This isn't, you're out of place. Why is the creature making judgment calls on the fairness of God when you certainly lack the understanding and the knowledge to know all the facts and aspects to these things? And Paul here uses the Old Testament example of the potter and the clay. He says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now stay with me. Paul's point is not that you and I are literally clay, that we are inanimate, inert dust. However, you could argue that we are much more like the clay than God is like a potter. That God is not just a larger one of us who happens to have control of the wheel. Right? We have to not put God at our level. Uh, one of God's indictments against the unbelieving in Psalm 50 is, you thought I was one like yourself. That's, that's one of his indictments against the unbelieving world. You thought I was like you. See, we have no right to criticize God because we're not God. And Paul here, with the potter and the clay, he's making a case of our identity and our relationship to God. God, like a skilled potter, has a vessel in mind. Maybe some of you have seen someone making pottery. Uh, when they begin that work, they have, a, they have a, a vessel in mind when they begin to scoop the clay onto the wheel and begin to mold it to their liking. And the clay can be soft and pliable. It can be rigid or dry. But the emphasis is not on the awesomeness of the clay, but the intent of the potter. And the potter has the absolute right to take from the same lump of clay a vessel he shapes for an honorable use while taking the same lump and shaping another vessel for dishonorable use. And the lump itself has no right to protest. I've never seen it before. I've never seen the clay saying, this isn't fair. I want it to be a bigger pot, right? I've never seen that. But, but notice what Paul says next. And this is kind of what he's building as a case. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. If you miss this, then you've missed everything. What is Paul getting after? The end game, just like with Moses at Sinai or Pharaoh in Egypt, the end game is to make himself known. Did you catch that? Look again, verse 22. He endures the unbelieving with great patience by shaping vessels of wrath who are prepared for destruction. Why? He says, to show his wrath and to make known his power. That's why he's doing that. 
This is a work of revelation. Yes, condemnation is there. He's, he's condemned the wicked. But all of that ultimately is revelation. It's there in verse 23. See, all of that condemnation is undergirding something else that God wants to make known. What is it? It's the riches of his glory in his work molding the vessels of mercy. And he says he's prepared beforehand in glory. Again, it's not by our merit, our exertion, our works. It's prepared in advance. So notice with me, whether it's patience and wrath in his judgment or glory and mercy in salvation, the purpose here, guys, is that God is revealing himself and his glory, and he has the sovereign right to do whatever he wills. Uh, Thomas Schreiner says it this way, uh, human beings are apt to criticize God for excluding anyone. But this betrays a theology that views salvation as something God ought to bestow on all equally. What is fundamental for God is the revelation of his glory and the proclamation of his name. And he acknowledges this by showing mercy and by withholding it. God's righteousness is upheld because he manifests it by revealing his glory, both in saving and in judging. Wow. Well, don't skip over verse 24 too quickly because this will be the jumping off point into next week's sermon. Did you catch it? The potter has not only molded Jews into vessels of honor, he's also included ethnic Gentiles. Gentiles like you and Gentiles like me. And we'll unpack that more next week and see how Paul's not just making this up as he goes. Like, I have some ideas here. No, this is directly out of God's word. And as we'll see next week, there are many references that he continues uh, to reference to back up his points. On that note, I want to make some application. And this is our first application point. Uh, this is something we must all do. Rather than deconstruct our faith and move into dis despair and doubt, number one, I want to apply it this way. We must let the truth of Scripture answer our difficult questions. See, Paul doesn't shrink back from or skate around the controversial questions of the day. He doesn't skate around this idea, this doctrine of sovereign election. And it can present controversy if we misunderstand it. What does he do, though? He handles it head on. How? With quotes from the Old Testament. <laughs> so if you're here today and you think election or predestination, those are unfair, those are unbiblical, then I just encourage you, open your Bibles because it is found throughout the scripture. Notice verse 17, Paul proves his point not with I feel or I think or, well, this is what truth means to me. No, he says the scripture says. So anytime someone comes to you and has a theory or a doctrine, or an idea that cannot be supported with the words the scripture says, then I would say be on guard. Rob Bell, who I would argue is a heretic, he has said, he's literally said this, beware of people who charge in with certainty and Bible verses. Beware them, he says, to which I say, beware Rob Bell. <laughs> Listen, we don't deconstruct we dig in and we dig deep into God's word. We believe in the five solas that the reformers believed and bled for. And regarding the scriptures, the Bible, we affirm what's known as sola scriptura. That means that, that many authorities do exist, but scripture alone is the highest authority. 
And so that means the buck does not stop. Listen carefully. The buck does not stop with my favorite author or my secular humanist professor or God forbid the celebrity who's weighing in on the cultural hot topic virtue signal of the month. Okay, I don't care what the ball player says about gender or privilege or sexuality or when life begins. I let the scripture alone be the highest authority in all matters of faith and practice. Realizing that Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, guys, the solution for the progressive church or the deconstructing Christian or even the detracting doubter is not to move away from God who's revealed himself in the scriptures, but to draw near to him by faith, not to sneer or scoff at his ways, but to submit to them. So listen, I want to address you. If you're in that camp that I described when we began our study today, you've kind of pushed away from the table and you legitimately do have serious questions and you have doubts about your faith or about the Bible, uh, about the church, about the nature or character of God. Well, listen, I, as a pastor, implore you not to move away from the word of God, but to let the truth of scripture answer your question. I'm not afraid of any question. There's, there's not a single question theologically that I'm afraid of. It's not like our pastors or any pastors are saying, oh man, I hope someone doesn't ask that question because if they find out that that's the question to ask, then it's impossible to answer and this whole house of cards of Christianity comes crashing down. No, after a lifetime, after a church history of thousands of years where men and women have consistent Bible reading and Bible study, that has given us more faith in what we believe and not less. So don't let the question drive a wedge in your faith. Let the word of God speak to you. Secondly, though, one more application. Let's let the reality of our salvation invoke wonder, awe, and worship. This is a tough sermon. This is a tough text. But as I was studying it, at least once or twice, I was absolutely gripped with the reality of my salvation as I was studying through this. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to be a vessel of wrath, but God has, before eternity passed, made me a vessel of honor and glory. Who am I to argue with the source of all life, right? Does the actor on stage playing Othello stop in the middle of his monologue and begin to question Shakespeare, the author of the play? No, no, he looks at his lines, he plays his part, and he's enamored that such a masterpiece has even been written. Listen, you and I are not pawns nor play actors. We're adopted heirs. We're direct recipients of the gospel of all grace. And so learning more about God's mercies should not cause our fists to rise in the air and our jaws to clench, but our jaws to drop in utter amazement at what we deserve being judgment, but receiving mercy because of his son. John Stott says, the, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. May that be our posture. Not that we go out and be angry at these things in one way or another, but that we are humbled, and this invokes wonder, awe, and worship. As we close this morning, I want to encourage you this week to just take some time to read through this again and thank God for your wondrous salvation. Isaac Watts was attributed to writing the hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And he used the word awful, but he didn't mean it the way we do, like referring to Zaxby's. <clears throat> In its original context... 
It, it means something that invoked the fullness of awe. You're like, I like Zaxby's. Well, good for you. The word awful, it, it kind of means the way we mean awesome. And so listen this morning to these cheerful, powerful words. How sweet, I want you to identify with this, okay? How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join the feast of all the blessed, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter with the sun? when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Amen? What a wondrous salvation we have. Let's glory in it and thank God for it. Bow your heads with me this morning as we close in prayer. God of all grace, we praise you for electing us to salvation. You fashioned vessels of honor to the praise of your glorious grace, though we know we were born by nature children of wrath. In our natural state, vessels of dishonor, slaves, as Titus is told, slaves to various passions and pleasures and passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And yet you foreknew and predestined and called, justified, and glorified us. When your goodness and loving kindness as God our Savior appeared, you saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to your own good mercy. Holy Spirit, you were active in our regeneration. You were poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So today, Lord, we stand in amazement at your wondrous grace. And Lord, we receive it like a blind beggar receiving sight, like a crippled man being lifted up and made whole. Lord, we don't deserve your mercy, but we stand in awe before you. And Lord, may we bring our doubts and our questions and our concerns and all of our troubles to lay at your feet. This morning, we trust that your inspired word is profitable to teach, correct, reprove, and train us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, if there's some who are wrestling in their faith this morning, maybe they're here, maybe they're listening to this later, will you show yourself faithful on their behalf? And in the midst of their darkness, will you comfort their soul with the light of your truth? This morning, Lord, we acknowledge that death was once our great opponent, and fear once had a hold on us. But the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. So we praise you, Lord, this morning that the curse has been broken and it was finished upon that cross. So receive this morning, Lord, our praise, our gratitude, our obedience, our very lives to extend your glory to the nations. Lord, we pray in the exalted, mighty, saving name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. 
If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.